This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here, host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. We want to keep you in the now with information on news, sports, politics, technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community. And that community includes me. But we don't want to do all the talking. We want to hear from you. Do you have an opinion on something you saw in the news? Is something affecting your community? Now is your chance to be heard. Listen to Now with Dave Brown wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. We all know something about mothering. We have a mom, all of us. We've been mothered. Maybe we are mothers ourselves, or at least know of a mother. Being a mother is so taken for granted that it might seem perplexing to be talking about it at all. We talk about good mothers and bad mothers, helicopter mothers and negligent mothers. Underlying all these considerations about mothers and motherhood is the valuing of some types of mothers and some versions of childhood over others. Motherhood goes beyond a discussion of parenting. We even hear references to the motherland, for instance. There is a cultural obsession with the idea of motherhood. Today, we discuss disability and motherhood. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juwita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. First off, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I really hope you're staying safe and keeping well during COVID-19 because this is, of course, a hard time for all of us and an unusual time for all of us. But you're not alone. And if by any chance you wanted to keep up with the latest AMI-audio coverage around COVID-19, please visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. A while back, I came across Knots, the undergraduate journal for disability studies out of the University of Toronto. Knots brings together the work and contributions of scholars from the undergraduate department at the University of Toronto and has some incredible contributors. One such contributor is my guest today. Her name is Sam Burnett, and she joins me to talk about her essay, which was published in Knots, the undergraduate disability studies journal called Disability and the Desirability Politics of Motherhood. Welcome to The Pulse, Sam Burnett. It is so nice to have you on the program. Thanks, Joita. It's nice to be here. So in your paper, the first thing you say is, um, and it might seem like a bit of a no-brainer, is this notion that you can either have a good childhood or, quote-unquote, a bad childhood. Mm -hmm. So in North America, what are some of the ideas or the ingredients that go into making a good childhood or, by extension, a bad childhood? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think intuitively, when we think about a good childhood, a lot of us can think about, you know, having a childhood that's full of happiness, um, you know, safety, um, lots of support from loved ones and caregivers. Um, and we also think about having lots of abundance. I think that in North America, especially this this concept of abundance and like plentiful opportunity is a big one with respect to childhood. So, you know, having lots of opportunities to play and learn and like do things that are stimulating and be involved in activities and hobbies. But I think that often like to that end, you know, a good childhood is one where um, a child is kind of on the route to um, some degree of success. And that success is mm -hmm. often defined in ways such as like, you know, being able to grow up and be, you know, the best version of themselves as an adult. You know, I think with a lot of uh, discussion um, 
in you know disability studies, for example, we talk a lot about how um, childhood is always contextualized within a society that values particular kinds of adults, right? So mm-hmm. in childhood, you know, if you have you know a very good education or lots of different like stimulating um, you know activities that are going to ensure like good development into a good you know productive um, adult then that's kind of the metric of like good childhood. Whereas a bad childhood is more like, you know, you don't have those opportunities. Your development is not happening, um, you know, quickly enough or, um, you know, you don't have access to the same kinds of resources that other children might have, for example. And normally when we talk about good childhood, disability is not factored into that discussion Mm -hmm. in any way. In fact, disability comes into the discussion as something that, you know, tarnishes the childhood or makes it worse off or like limits a child in in their ability to be happy. One of the things that we talk about when we're discussing a person's childhood is the role of the mother. What Mm -hmm. kind of pressures do mothers feel in creating conditions suitable for a good childhood? Um, I think that mothers are definitely given um, a huge task in raising children and are given the responsibility to provide um, like the best possible childhood at all times for their child and to make sure that their child is always experiencing um, you know, the best possible trajectory um, upwards into an adulthood, right? So um, to that end, you know, mothers are responsible for you know, not only providing for their children and caring for their children, but doing so in the right kinds of ways Um, And also, Mm -hmm. um, you know, making sure that they're always keeping an eye out for anything that could go wrong in childhood, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, such as, you know, delayed, you know, developmental trajectory or the presence of any kind of disability, which is what I focused on in my paper, um, Mm -hmm. for sure. So they are expected to definitely rely on sort of like these expert discourses about childhood, such as like psychological discourse and medical discourse about what childhood is and how a child grows. Um, and to that end, kind of have these very high standards for providing for their children in that way. Right. And you know, that's a really good point. But one of the things that I've struggled with is, although I'm now an adult and I have a good job and all kinds of other things that ostensibly lead towards a good childhood uh, for any children I might have, I, in fact, have no children of my own. But I'm mm-hmm. told that when I do, not if, but when I do, um, I will know exactly what to do. To what extent is this notion that motherhood is inevitable culturally uh, ingrained in all of us? Oh, for sure. I mean, definitely, you know, I also don't have any children of my own, but it's kind of expected that I will eventually, right? And that, you know, Mm -hmm. women, you know, have this kind of natural inclination to eventually be mothers, this kind of natural expertise, um, this natural... Um, you know, uh, instinct for mothering, um, and that we should all want to be mothers, right? And so a lot Mm -hmm. of us, um, you know, across our lives tend to be kind of pressured by our friends, by loved ones, even by strangers um, and experts about how, you know, eventually we're going to want children and have them. um, And that's kind of almost like a, um, a duty that we have in a way. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let me just pick up on that a little bit. So a while back, I interviewed somebody about curing disability, um, because the child had a very severe disability. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was the extent to which the child's mother harbored a great deal of guilt about the child's disability. Had she done something wrong during her pregnancy? Do women face this inordinate amount of pressure to prevent disability in some way or the other? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that they do. Um, I think that there's this feeling that a mother has somehow failed if something, quote unquote, goes wrong in a child's life, whether it's, you know, they didn't do enough during pregnancy to prevent disability somehow, or if a disability emerges like in the lifespan of the child, then, oh, I could have done more to make sure that this didn't happen. Um, And definitely, I think mothers download this guilt um, because there's this very sort of tragic model of disability that we have where, you know, if a child especially becomes disabled, there's this huge source of of stress and, um, you know, the the sense that, you know, something has been lost, right? Something has been Mm -hmm. irrevocably lost from this child, uh, from this child's life, rather. Um, And so that kind of guilt then factors into how the mother is expected to see herself and how she's treated by other people. Right. In your article, you use the term desirability politics. What does that term mean? Yeah. So when I talk about just desirability politics, I was talking a little bit about ideas that we have about, you know, who is desirable and who is not um, and what kinds of lives are desirable and worth living and worth aspiring towards and what aren't. Um, and that also includes, you know, mm-hmm. who teaches this information? How do we get this information about who is desirable Who's not like what kind of lives should we be living, um, whether, you know, in my article as mothers or as children. Um, and then, you know, to that end, this kind of uh, relates to, you know, life outcomes. So like, you know, which lives are worth investing in, um, you know, whose stories are uplifted and celebrated. Um, you know, what kind of uh, time and effort do we put in to making sure that we have this kind of like desirable life? Um, and I call right. it desirability politics because it sort of has everything to do with the political realities of life, right? It's hard to understand mm-hmm. where these ideas of desirability come from without attending to, you know, the kind of larger political, economic ideas about, you know, how we should live in society, right? And usually disability right. isn't included in those conversations. Exactly. But let's try and probe that desirability politics and where some of these ideas come from. What role does eugenics play in the, some of these ideas? Notions about uh, who is considered racially fit who and who is not has been such a big part of conversations in Canada and elsewhere. Does eugenics play a part in our conversation about motherhood and desirable, quote unquote, good childhoods? Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that it plays a role. I think that it's hugely influenced how we've talked about Um, parenting and child raising in, you know, countries like, you know, Canada and the U.S. and also abroad um, for many, many centuries. Um, I think that motherhood, um, as it is kind of like a social project in a way, although it does paint a very bleak picture, um, I think that it's been very much included in a sort of eugenics project of making sure that, um, you know, uh, know, nation states like Canada, for example, um, have desirable citizens citizens whose bodies and minds kind of fit the normative, um, fit the desirable. Um, And definitely, I think, to an extent, it's uh, almost like part of motherhood is being able to Mm -hmm. weed out those undesirable traits in children. My name is Chawitha Gupta, and my guest today is Sam Burnett, who is a contributor to NOTS, the Undergraduate Disability Studies Journal at the University of Toronto. Sam Burnett's article deals with disability and the desirability politics of motherhood. Sam, we talked about this just a few minutes ago, this idea that mother knows best. And yet mothers are, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, often forced to cede a degree of authority to medical practitioners, to the writers of uh, child rearing books like the Dr. Spocks. Where does that leave mothers as people with agency? How do they reconcile what they want to do with what they're being told they need to do? 
Well, I think that on the one hand, uh, mothers are definitely expected to pay attention to the sort of expert knowledge on how to raise children. Um, so, you know, when we talk about expert knowledge, we mean, you know, like knowledge from like doctors and pediatricians and psychologists um, and so forth. Um, but I think at the same time, like mothers do push back against that a little bit. Um, I think that, you know, they do find their own way and they um, don't always necessarily, you know, adhere to the kind of guidelines that are set out. I mm-hmm. think that uh, this kind of expert knowledge tends to promote um, a kind of very like hyper surveilled sort of childhood, you know, where mothers are very kind of like on the ball um, and, you know, taking kind of control of like their child's development, whether that be emotional development or physical development or social development or what have you. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that, you know, a lot of mothers out there are reconciling with that by just doing, you know, what is best for their children and listening to their children about what they want and what they need and what's working for them, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that the conceptions of what it means to be a good mother have changed over time? So my mother worked for as long for all of my childhood. She was uh, employed in some capacity or the other. Her mother was a housewife and my, her grandmother before was also a housewife. So as women have taken on more roles outside the home, I wonder if that's changed expectations culturally about what it means to be a good mother. Yeah, absolutely. I think that as kind of norms shift around like, you know, womanhood and motherhood um, and what it means to kind of be a good provider and a good mother, um, that absolutely shifts, um, you know, what kinds of things that mothers are expected to do. So like you said, um, you know, my grandmother was a housewife. Being a good mother meant staying at home, attending to the domestic uh, labor around the house, um, providing in some kind of you know, nurturing way. Um, my mother was sort of born into a generation where women were starting to really enter the workforce, and that was sort of um, seen almost as like, uh, you know, good mothers not only are able to provide for their children, um, you know, in mm-hmm. the sort of uh, domestic sense, but also are able to go to work and provide uh, monetarily and be these sort of like more independent women. Um, and I think that, you know, what's expected of mothers changes with. Um, not only shifts in norms, but also uh, shifts in technology um, and kind of sort of scientific knowledge. So, you know, I think we've seen a lot of uh, emergent technologies um, and, you know, knowledge that um, wasn't really available. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was a huge sort of shift in thinking around, um, you know, childhood psychology um, and, you know, a lot of sort of psychoanalysis popping up in like the 70s and 80s. Um, to really sort of like get into the like nitty gritty of uh, what is inside a child's, you know, mind. Um, Mm-hmm. One of the things that you talk about in your essay, which I admit I was a bit surprised by, is the assertion that mothers are compared to assembly line workers mm-hmm. and children are seen as the end product. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so that definitely does paint a bit of a bleak picture. Um, But what I meant by that is just that, like I said, motherhood is sort of like utilized in this particular way in the context of um, a sort of capitalist society that values some kinds of people and some kinds of bodies over others, right? So as I was Mm -hmm. saying earlier to you, um, childhood is always uh, configured as good or bad in relation to what kind of adult that that childhood is going to to grow up and be. Um, Mm -hmm. So in this case, you know, a mother has this sort of role to rear her child into who is a person who's ultimately going to be a kind of good 
productive, able-bodied, ideally, um, in society anyway, um, sort of capitalist citizen. So someone who can go to work and provide labor um, and contribute to the economy, right? We talk about that a lot. Um, yeah, for sure. So let's just talk a little bit here, if I can introduce a bit of a wrinkle about mothers with disabilities. So, you know, we know that women of a certain age, if they're employed, whatnot, they're expected to become mothers. There's a degree of inevitability there. When are you going to get pregnant? But when it comes to mothers with disabilities or women with disabilities, those questions don't seem to crop up quite as often. Why is it that there's this persistent stigma around mothers with disabilities? Yeah, I think that there's this perception that mothers with disabilities, you know, aren't capable of raising children. They're not up to the task. Um, That's sort of this very intuitive assumption that I think a lot of people have, which is really unfortunate. Um, There's this idea that if you have a disability, um, you are not fit to provide the kind of good childhood that every child deserves, right? So Mm -hmm. um, often, you know, where you see in, um, you know, let's say non-disabled women, the kind of pressure to have children and the you know excited expectations from other people about the child that you're going to have one day. Um, for women with disabilities, often it's the case that um, they're discouraged from having children um, or told that, you know, it'll be a too difficult of an experience for them. Or in some cases, they're just outright not even given the choice entirely. Um, unfortunately, uh, Canada and other countries have long histories of forced sterilization of disabled women, which are part of the kind of eugenic logics we were talking about earlier Um, And this is still ongoing where a lot of women with disabilities are not, um, you know, um, they they go through sterilization procedures um, and they're not able to have children. If they do have children, they're seen as very selfish um, or as, uh, you know, it's very tragic because, you know, their child is not going to have the best life. Um, I think that oftentimes we conceptualize the ability of a mother to provide in terms of her physical ability, um, you know, physical and um, mental, you know, um, ability, uh, because it, there's almost this perception that, you know, you are not going to um, have the resources on your own to take care of your child. Never mind that, you know, for, for lots of non-disabled women, you know, we're relying on networks of care and support to, you know, raise our children. Um, but, you know, as soon as you're disabled, that's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. automatically discounts you being a good mother. Right. One of the first interviews I did on The Pulse, and I would say about a year ago, uh, probably now, was with um, an artist and disability activist, Krista Couture, who had a number of pictures taken of herself with her pregnancy bump and her baby bump because she wanted to celebrate motherhood as a woman with a disability. How else are mothers from different backgrounds, not just mothers with disabilities, but other women who might be stigmatized, uh, like Indigenous women or teenage mothers, reclaiming what it means to be a good mother? Yeah, I think that um, you know, social media, for example, has done a lot to promote um, and give uh, you know, women from different backgrounds, women from marginalized backgrounds, an opportunity to celebrate motherhood, um, to share their stories. Um, and to let the world know that, you know, they're not, you know, they don't feel um, like their lives are full of tragedy. Um, they don't feel uh, that their children um, are worse off because of them. You know, in fact, they have very loving and wonderful relationships with their children, and they're happy to be mothers. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they're kind of, you know, defeating that stigma in that way. They're finding community online. Um, 
that's a big one for sure. That is a really big one. You know, a couple of years back when I took a women's studies class uh, at U of T, which is my alma mater, um, one of the concepts we encountered was that during Victorian, uh, during the Victorian era in England, women's ovaries were nationally owned. This idea that motherhood was an act of patriotism. To what extent do those ideas persist today uh, where, you know, some kinds of mothers are seen as perpetuating the nation's state and other types of mothers are kept separate from their children in detention facilities, for example? Yeah, so um, my opinion uh, on this, um, which is echoed by a lot of um, anti-racist scholars, a lot of um, scholars in disability studies and in black studies, et cetera, um, is the idea that you know, when you're talking about, you know, who's desirable, you have to factor in white supremacy. Um, so often, you know, a lot of the kind of desirable um, uh, subjects, as it were, are, you know, white, able-bodied citizens who can reproduce a particular kind of like white, able-bodied future. It, it, again, paints a very bleak picture, but I think when you contextualize this in the context of, um, you know, ongoing and historical efforts to, um, promote like a white settler state in you know countries like Canada and the U.S. Um, and the efforts that have been put in to um, marginalize and eliminate um, people whose bodies don't fit the kind of white able-bodied norm. Um, you know, you really start to see how this is sort of um, how this is sort of perpetuated through motherhood yeah. as a cultural conception. Yeah. Sam Burnett, thank you so much for being on the program today. It was such a pleasure to have you with us. A very interesting conversation. Thanks a lot for being on The Pulse today. Thank you very much, Jamita. That was Sam Burnett, who is an alumni of the University of Toronto. Her article, Disability and the Desirability Politics of Motherhood, was published in the journal Knots, an undergraduate disability studies journal published out of the University of Toronto. Knots has a number of interesting contributors who've written about a range of topics. It is available online, and you can look at or read any of those articles for free. I will put up a link to Sam Burnett's article on our show blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. If you missed my conversation with Sam Burnett or would like to go back over it, you can find it on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And since we're talking about podcasts, I thought I'd mention a couple of related episodes we did here on the pulse dealing with disability and motherhood. One, of course, is the episode that I talked about earlier in the program with Krista Couture, where we talked about disability and motherhood from the perspective of a mother with a disability. But you might also remember a while back, we did a series of vaccine hesitancy. And part of that series was a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Reich from the University of Colorado and Denver, Denver, where we talked about her book, Calling the Shots, which gets into vaccine hesitancy, vaccine regimes, and the roles that mothers often play in ensuring that they have up-to-date information about vaccines and why mothers may choose not to vaccinate their children because they're prompted by a desire to be quote-unquote good mothers. So you can always head back over to your podcast archives and check out any of those episodes. I have a lot to say on this topic. I think that being a mother is something that should be celebrated by women of all abilities, but we do have to get past some of the cultural conceptions that limit the role of what a mother can be. We put a lot of pressure on women sometimes, I think, to be good mothers. But I think parenting, and I say this as someone who doesn't have children, but I would imagine that parenting is something that you learn as you go along. And we can only hope to do the best that we can. I'd like to thank Sam Burnett for being the, our guest on the program today. 
The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening to the program. If you have any feedback, you can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI to write to us on Twitter. Or you can send us an email, write to feedback at AMI.ca. Or you can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. We'd love to do that. Thanks a lot for listening today and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.